Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Mike Hudson, Senior Editor, and Spencer Woodman, Reporter from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ. After a brief word from our sponsor, Refinitiv, Mike, Spencer, and I will discuss the so-called FinCEN files, a series of stories based on information redacted from more than 2,000 suspicious activity reports leaked to ICIJ's partner, BuzzFeed. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. Refinitiv acquires the Red Flag Group, significantly expanding its suite of due diligence offerings. By combining the best in breed of both organizations, the Refinitiv Due Diligence Solution offers the optimum in technology, data insights, scalability, and automation capabilities. Refinitiv is now ideally positioned to address the challenges fueled by an increasingly complex and rapidly evolving business environment helping customers to more efficiently meet their third-party, supply chain, and customer risk mitigation needs. Find out more at Refinitiv.com. Well, it's a great pleasure to have Mike Hudson, Senior Editor of International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and Spencer Woodman, who's a reporter for ICIJ as the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists is known. Maybe I'll start with you, Mike. For the people in my world, a big story has been the FinCEN files, and you and ICIJ have been a real part of that. But for those maybe who are out there that are not part of the whole anti-money laundering world, what are the FinCEN files? Tell me a little bit about what they revealed. What we call the FinCEN files is a collaborative investigation led by ICIJ and BuzzFeed News and involving more than 100 media partners in 88 countries around the world. The investigation is based on more than 2,000 suspicious activity reports, most of them dating roughly from 2012 to 2016. The investigation looked at the flows of dirty money, illicit funds that are going through big banks around the world. Our investigation found that some of the world's biggest banks kept working with criminal networks, suspect characters, even after they'd received huge fines, and including in some cases signing deferred prosecution agreements for earlier failures to send the flows of illicit cash. These are basically what we call suspicious activity reports, more than 2,000 of them. They've come to ICIJ or they went to a partner. BuzzFeed shared those documents with us. ICIJ set up a system which allowed journalists within the partnership to review those documents and you know share information with each other and what was in those documents. Did you have the whole documents when you did reporting on them? Were they already by that point abstracted? We had the whole documents. Talk a little bit about the process that went into deciding what you used to create news stories. On this question, I'm going to defer to Spencer because he worked on this story much longer than I did. This was a pretty difficult reporting task from the outset, partially because it was so new. At ICIJ, we have dealt with a lot of very document-intensive projects involving big leaks of financial data, such as the Panama Papers, Paradise Papers. This is the largest trove of financial transaction data that I had ever seen. Our previous leaks involved a lot of account information, a lot of financial structure information. 
the SARS presented a completely different kind of reporting task, and it was looking at actual money flows. It was fascinating, but also very difficult. One of the things that was difficult about it, and this became part of the story in, in addition to being a reporting challenge, is that the SARS themselves described financial transactions. Many of them are very large and many of them involved shell companies and high-risk jurisdictions. But the people writing the SARS apparently knew very little about what underlied the transactions themselves. So the first few months of this reporting process was reading hundreds of SARS and basically doing parallel work to the compliance officers that had written the SARS in trying to understand what was behind the transactions. And in a lot of cases, the SARS did not have very high quality information accompanying the transactions. We basically picked up where the compliance officers left off to try to understand what we were actually looking at. It was basically line by line research trying to get under transactions for months and months to expand on reporting lines that we had already found and to find new ones and determine what was in the public interest to report on and everything that was irrelevant to our investigative stories we left out. It's important to note that, you know, we didn't post a huge cache of raw documents online. We posted, you know, after we determined through lots of reporting, lots of consultation with experts and lots of deliberation that the posting was in the public interest. And, you know, we made sure that we redacted things like names of bank employees, account numbers. I think the other thing, you know, that's important to note, you also just didn't simply have stories which quoted ad nauseum a bunch of transaction details that we saw in the SARS. I mean, we went outside the SARS and looked at court records, you know, public records obtained for Freedom of Information Act, interviewed lots of ex-employees, lots of whistleblowers. Through our partners, you know, this great, powerful, vast network of terrific journalists around the world, we obtained more more than 17,000 other records beyond the SARS, beyond the FinCEN documents from insiders and whistleblowers and court files. And, and we interviewed between all, all of the partners, we interviewed you know hundreds of people, including financial crime experts, law enforcement officials, crime victims. ICIJ gets lots of credit in the wake of the Panama Papers for how you handled that information. And I think, you know, it's interesting what you're saying. There was a real decision made not to in any way identify bank employees. It does lead to the question a little bit, was there a debate about the fact that the SAR regime is one that relies on confidence, anonymity? It's also unproven, and it's just supposed to be a tip thing. So was there a concern as you ventured into that world that you might be damaging the SAR regime? Or was it that you guys think about the public interest, that this was so in the public interest? We definitely talked about all those issues a lot. And we made clear in our stories that these were suspicions, possible wrongdoing, and not directly evidence or proof of wrongdoing. And we tried to make that clear. And that's why we went outside the documents to pull together other information to help put them in context. One of the questions that have been raised sort of in the aftermath of the FinCEN files is, well, is this going to have a chilling effect on reporting? Banks are legally required to do this. If a leak of years old material, not stuff that happened in the last year or two, but going back farther, you know, causes banks not to comply with the law or comply less aggressively with the law. It's a problem with the system. You know, it's not supposed to be a voluntary thing. It's not a question of good faith. It's a question of law. And then also turning this around in terms of the, you know, just the term chilling effect is, you know, our investigation showed banks' concerns for revenues and relationships, a significant degree had a chilling effect on banks' willingness to file SARS in a timely manner and to subject their clients to truly in-depth scrutiny and to take action to block transactions likely tied to criminal activity. So we would hope what we've reported 
will actually encourage better reporting, better written SARs, more timely SARs, sort of more aggressive action and better law legislation and rulemaking that improves the system. Spencer, having gone through these documents, and I'll warn you, it is a lot of our listeners, so be careful what you say here. What was your sense of the role of the compliance officer? And you, you said some of them were pretty badly written and uh, others had helpful information, but what did you come away with in terms of maybe even advice that you'd give compliance officers out there? Both through my conversations with compliance officers, people in the compliance world, and reading through these many, many SARs, a pretty clear picture emerged. These are people who, in many cases, are very well qualified to do the work they're doing. They are very dedicated to the work they're doing. They're not that dissimilar from investigative journalists. They're doing basic investigations and trying to identify problems and root out wrongdoing. The problem is that in a lot of cases they were facing, it wasn't a problem with the compliance officers. It was that people who were qualified to do their jobs and took their jobs very seriously we're facing some headwinds at work, and that came in the several different forms. In some cases, there was a time crunch. They had too many suspicious activity alerts to clear and not enough time to do meaningful investigations. That would result in basically doing quick Google searches and running into a shell company and saying, okay, this is registered in Nevis or BVI, and we can't figure out what it is. Let's report it and move on. Another was a lot of problems in people getting meaningful answers in response or any answers in response to requests for information on foreign bank branches or correspondent banks about suspicious activity. And look, I mean, if you don't understand who is behind a shell company, you're not going to understand what is going on with a multi-million dollar transaction moving across borders. In some cases, there were some issues with the tools that the compliance officers were using. Over and over again, a SAR, you can think of it kind of as a snapshot in time of what a compliance team knew about a suspicious activity or instances of various suspicious activities. You can see, in some cases, actual frustration in the SARS being expressed regarding failure of bank branches to respond to RFIs. Over and over again, you see compliance officers reporting, I would say, staggeringly suspicious transactions involving many millions of dollars moving between high-risk jurisdictions, where the compliance officer dealing with the SAR just didn't understand what was moving through the bank's accounts. And maybe wasn't getting a lot of help from the business line people about that. That's right. And you have to look at just sort of institutional power, folks that we talk to, basically the people on the sales end, the bankers, the people who are bringing revenue, deposits, transactions, bring revenue into the company, had a lot more clout than compliance. Years ago, I did a lot of reporting on the subprime mortgage industry, you know, Wall Street's role and sort of bankrolling the industry. And what I found was, is there were lots of great compliance people working in big banks and mortgage lenders. And when they did their jobs and found fraud and reported it, they were often ignored, marginalized, and in some cases, demoted, fired. It's really difficult when you're working in an institution and you're essentially costing the institution money to have the clout to really do your job as well as you can and be heard and, and have an impact. So there are some marquee names, so to speak, uh, in the annals of crime, uh, if I could say so, that appear in the what we're calling the FinCEN files. Joe Lowe, Paul Manafort, 
Maybe if you could each talk a little bit about what stands out to you, particular things that surprised you and that you found really significant and gave you a new perspective on financial crime. Our research into the SARS found that J.P. Morgan had processed more than $50 million in payments over a decade for Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign manager. And in fact, the bank had moved at least $6.9 million in Manafort-related transactions in the 14 months after he had resigned from the campaign, you know, amid allegations of money laundering and corruption tied to his work with a pro-Russia political party in Ukraine. The Manafort example was really interesting because you could just see this case of a person moving dirty money and the bank watching it and reporting it and nothing happening until this person became an extremely high profile public figure and involved in a major public scandal. You have to wonder what would have happened if Paul Manafort did not become involved with the Trump campaign in 2016. I looked at some correspondent relationships with banks that were owned by oligarchs, including banks owned by Dmitry Firtash and Oleg Deripaska and also various transactions relating to those two oligarchs and, and other oligarchs. I did find overall, I found it kind of fascinating. Compliance officers in the cases of oligarchs would often be able to identify these individuals as behind transactions. And as early as 2010, 2011, 2012, were raising red flags because there were various different reports of oligarchs like this being involved in alleged criminal activity and other illicit activity while they were moving major money through these banks. You know, lo and behold, over and over again, the compliance department filed what I believe to be meritorious SARS on activity that would later seen in a much different light when, at least in the case of Dimitri Firtash, he's charged in the Illinois federal court with international bribery scheme, Deripaska subject to international sanctions at various points. So there did seem to be, in the case of oligarchs, uh, there did seem to be a disconnect between what compliance officers were perceiving and seeing to be high-risk activity given what's in the public record about these customers and the bank's willingness to continue working with them. I think the Furtash case is interesting. You know, we had several major banks moving money for Furtash. The documents showed that JP Morgan moved the most among these banks for funds linked to Furtash about $2 billion between 2003 and 2014. The fact is, is that JP Morgan and other banks should have been aware of, you know, Furtash's sort of suspect history as far back as 2010 when a leaked U.S. diplomatic cable linked Furtash to Russian organized crime interest. Then in 2011, there was a lawsuit filed by a former Ukrainian prime minister who accused Furtash of being involved in um, an international money laundering scheme and actually named, you know, future Trump campaign manager Manafort as being part of this scheme. And the, the lawsuit named specific accounts in the New York offices of J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, Standard Charter, and Bank of New York Mellon that were allegedly being used in money laundering operations that shifting money stolen from in the Ukraine to the U.S. and then after it been cleaned, round tripping it back to Ukraine. And we found this in a lot of cases with oligarchs and also with notorious crime figures, that there was a lot of public information out there that raised serious questions about these folks. In some cases, the banks did react to this, and certainly compliance officers did, but in a lot of cases, they just continued moving money for many years 
after negative information was on the record, credible information linking them to criminal activity. What's kind of revealed about the role of law enforcement? There's certainly been a lot of studies that show law enforcement is at best overwhelmed, you know, the, the best reason why this may not happen, they're overwhelmed by these. So talk a little bit about that. This investigation was as much about law enforcement and regulatory action, the performance of regulators, as it was about what the banks are doing. What we found was the actions to law enforcement and regulators have taken around the world, and especially in the U.S., which obviously plays a special role in policing and dealing with the flow of illicit funds, haven't been that effective. We've talked to a lot of people, and really very few people are saying the system works really well. There's a lot of money that's moving around that's just not, you know, in most estimates are that only a tiny fraction of illicit funds being identified and intercepted. I don't think we would have meant to imply that compliance officers were negligent in their jobs. I mean, the message I got was that they weren't sufficiently empowered in some cases. Again, going back to the Manafort case, those transactions, if I remember correctly, the JP Morgan compliance officers understood in that case who was behind those transactions and law enforcement had access to those SARS. Um, for years and years. So then it becomes less of an issue of whether the compliance officers are doing their job and more an issue of what law enforcement was up to and whether they were reading the SARS, whether they had sufficient person power to read the SARS and really understand and investigate that information. And then this gets to the issue of inflation of SAR filing and the incredible increasing number of SARS that are filed and whether law enforcement is inundated with these things and can't read through them individually. Of course, they do provide a, you know, a library of information for law enforcement to query. In the case of HSBC, we did a deep dive on the information, both in our database and our own reporting on what HSBC's compliance efforts looked like in the years after it was charged with, um, or not charged, but um, received a deferred prosecution agreement for major money laundering violations in Mexico and elsewhere in 2012 for which it received a $1.9 billion fine. And we found that the bank, one of its major promises was to beef up and improve the way that its compliance officers understood what they were seeing when they were investigating transactions. And we saw that over and over again, compliance officers were still powerless to understand what was happening behind major transactions in the bank's various branches, at least according to both SARS that we analyzed and also compliance officers that we spoke with. Just to take HSBC's Hong Kong operations alone, we analyzed uh, 16 different shell companies that had SARS filed on them. That processed nearly, I believe it was $1.5 billion in transactions over and over again in each of these shell companies there was critical information missing. The bank compliance officers did not include things like who owned these accounts, who was behind the accounts, the country of origin of the person behind the accounts, sources of funds, things like that. So it was very surprising to see the lack of understanding for very large dollar accounts moving pretty suspicious funds in the period when the bank was on probation. Put that more flatly, I mean, during its five-year probationary period, HSBC continued to move money for questionable characters, including suspected Russian money launderers and a Ponzi schemer who was under investigation and, and, and multiple companies. HSBC was able to, in December of 2017, 
was able to exit the monitoring system and the probationary period and say that it had lived up to all its commitments. You know, we're not necessarily criticizing FinCEN and saying FinCEN is, you know, not on the right path, but I think it's pretty clear that you've got an agency that has a fairly low number of employees. I think, I think it's fewer, am I right, Spencer? It's fewer than 300 employees. You think about millions and millions of SARS that have come in in recent years. There's an argument many folks are making that FinCEN needs more resources, more people to do its job well. So, Mike, uh, you know, I know it's not your job to make recommendations you know, where we should go now. Uh, but based on your reporting, some thoughts about what could improve. As most folks know, there's legislation in front of Congress now about requiring identification of the owners of companies. A national beneficial ownership registry, yeah. Exactly. So we can help. I mean, because that's one of the problems we saw. Compliance officers were dealing with so many trying to figure out who was behind shell companies so often that it made it really hard for them to determine what was going on. Well, Mike and Spencer, I want to thank you. Uh, We've run out of time. I'm sorry. Where would you uh, direct people in terms of if they're looking for some resources, going deeper into the FinCEN files and what you wrote about them? I think if you just Google ICAJ and FinCEN files, you'll find good stories. Also, you know, BuzzFeed News and FinCEN files. And then also, if you're in another country, we probably have partners there. So I think you can you can look at your sort of local or, or national publications that worked on this project. Well, again, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Spencer. Really pleased to have you. And thanks to everyone there at ICIJ for all the great investigative reporting that you do. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mike Hudson and Spencer Woodman of ICIJ. I hope you found what you heard compelling and that you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.